uh, a couple of weeks ago asking a simple question. We were asking the question, is the Bible inspired? And uh, if you remember, we, we were asking this question. We started looking at the claims of the inspiration of the Bible. Does the Bible itself claim to be the inspired word of God? And if you remember, we looked at different claims in the text itself, and we determined that, yes, indeed, the Bible does claim to have inspiration, that it is the word of the Lord. All throughout the Bible, the Scriptures claim to be the word of God. Over and over, you hear different phrases that I'm sure you're very familiar with, phrases like, thus the, says the word of the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to, or God said, or God commanded, or hear the word of the Lord, over and over and over again. The scriptures are clear. We have these accounts of people hearing from God, prophets hearing from God and writing down the messages that they were given. And we call those collected messages that we have in our Bibles, uh, the scriptures themselves. Now, then after we noted that uh, we, we saw that the Bible does claim to be inspired, we also looked at some various evidences that back up the claim. Turns out there's a lot of evidence that also supports the idea that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. We looked at textual evidence. We talked about the Bible's unity, its historicity. We talked about prophecy, how statistically there's uh, no way for those things to happen by sheer coincidence, that that is a great proof of the inspiration of the Bible. And then lastly, lastly we talked about how the Bible has changed untold millions of peoples of lives. This morning... As we continue this series looking at the authority of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible, the authenticity of the Bible, um, we have to ask another set of questions this morning. The question is, how did these books that you and I have in our Bibles, how did we come to have these books? Uh, and in other words, um, um, uh, these books that we have, these 66 books, these 40 uh, some odd books of the Old Testament, 27 in the New. How did we come to have these books themselves? And so this morning, we're going to be looking at what is called the canon of Scripture. Uh, canon is just a term. Uh, well, let me, let me back up. These are the questions, the central questions we're going to be asking this morning. What books belong in the Bible? Were there other books out there? How many people have heard that there's actually a lot of other books that aren't in the Bible, and maybe some of those books need to be in the Bible, Right? So why are other books omitted? Who made these important decisions? Can they be trusted? And can we know for sure that the books that we have in the Bible are the right books? Now, when you say, Tim, canon, what are we talking about, canon? Uh, canon comes from a Greek word, kanon. It's just a, a Greek word. We took that Greek word and we brought it into English. It's actually a Greek word. But it just means uh, it's, it's, a, it's a means by which we determine the quality or the standard or something. So in terms of that Greek word, if you want to say something is canon, we'd say it's, it's the golden standard, right? It's the standard by which you would measure everything else. See, the reason why this question is important is because in ancient times, there were all kinds of writings, just like there's all kinds of writings today. You have uh, writings that were existing in the times of the Old Testament. There were other books being produced. There were other religious writings that are out there. There's other religious writings in the time of the New Testament. And yes, there are books out there that claim to be inspired. 
that claim to be written by authors with the same name as the apostles of, for example, in the New Testament, but that were not accepted into the canon of the New Testament. And of course, that brings up a lot of questions. Why? Why are these other books out there? Why did some books get accepted? Why did some books get not accepted? Why were some books regarded as being inspired of God? Why were some books not regarded as being inspired by God? And how do we know that we have the right ones in the Bible? I was having a conversation with a, a guy just this last week, and uh, he, we were talking about the canon of the Bible. And he was saying, you know, the, and, and you've probably heard this before too, you know, the Catholic Church, they're the ones that decided which books you have in your Bible uh, because there's a lot of other books out there that the church itself just kind of silenced and, and didn't want to have come out because they didn't want you to know the truth of what was in those books. How many people have heard that argument over the years? Okay, a few of you have. Well, we're going to answer that question this morning. Before we get into it, I want to talk first as to why this question is so important. I've got a book in my office. Some of you may have seen it before. It's called The Lost Books of the Bible. And uh, I've had this thing for probably well over 20 years. I remember one day somebody had given it to me, and I, I picked it up, and I was reading the, the front kind of question uh, to my mind, and it was saying, you know, that there's these other books. And I remember thinking, huh, are there other books Ancient books that, that are not in the Bible that should be in the Bible? And the claim of a lot of books like this is that these other books, if they had been given a fair shake, if, if they had been considered uh, with modern scrutiny, with modern eyes, then they would have been included in the Bible too. But because they were lost, because they were misplaced, because they were rejected for one reason or another, they were not allowed to be in there. This is a little excerpt from the book. I'm going to read this to you. This kind of sums up, if you will, the, the thinking behind this book. It says, the publication of this book will do good because it takes away the veil of secrecy that has hidden for many years the act of the church in accepting certain scriptures and rejecting others. In other words, the church has secrets, Right? Do you, do you hear the hint that it's trying to give you a little bit there? In other words, the, the, the church has secrets. There's other books out there. And apparently, according to them, there's a, a veil of secrecy. And there's only certain ones they want you to read. And, and by the way, here's a book that if you pay $19.99, we'll let you read the rest of them that they don't want you to read, right? Now, this is just one book. This is actually a very, very old book. There's a few other books that have been quite popular over the last few years. Um, this one over here to the left is called The Secret Teachings of Jesus. It gets into what's called the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, that's a copy of the Gnostic Gospels, Gospels right there. Uh, some of you may have heard of the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary. These are Gnostic Gospels. They come out of what it, in uh, the Nag Hammadi texts that were discovered down in Egypt. The one on the right there is called the Gospel of Philip. Dan Brown was an author so, some years ago. He came out with a book that was later adapted into a movie called The Da Vinci Code. Everybody... See the old movie to the Vinci Code. Well, it, it tries to weave together quasi-history and these ancient documents. And again, the idea behind these books and this, this literature is what? The church is this monstrosity that's trying to keep the truth from being in, coming into the world. But, but if you look at the secret knowledge, the secret text, you'll understand the real story, the real picture, what's really going on. Uh, and, and you see this all the time. Now, 
Here's the reason why this is important. A lot of times people say these books are inspired as well. That these books need to be on par with the 66 books that we have in our Bible. And the question that we have to kind of answer in our minds is, how do we know that the books that we have in our Bibles are the ones that should be there? In other words, how do we know that those 66 books are authoritative? Are we on the same page? I want to read you a, a little article here. This is from Bonnie Urbe. She's a nationally syndicated news columnist. She's somebody who has always been very anti-religious, anti-Christianity type person. And she wrote an article that really sums up the majority view. Now, when I was in college, uh, believe it or not, this was in the 90s. I started college in the 97, wound up getting my graduate degree in 2004. This is Lipscomb University. This is a Church of Christ school, a, a, a seminary. And, and I was taught what was called the documentary hypothesis. And if you go back and you're looking at the canonicity of Scripture, they teach you uh, in college that Moses, they'll, they'll start off with the five books of Moses. Moses did not actually write the first five books of Moses. Day one, they'll start you off with that right there. And, and they'll, they'll teach you what's called the documentary hypothesis. And Basically, the idea is through language analysis, they've been able to discover that, 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 that this part of of the the Torah was was written then in this part of the time period and this part was written here and this part was written here and they'll bring all that together and they'll say Moses didn't really write it all now I want you to listen to this article because this sums up that view very well that I was taught in college and that's being taught in many churches across America listen to this this is from her column as a product of a New York City progressive school I have spent much of my adult life making up for my lack of knowledge of biblical history. As a result of whenever I have a free moment, I tear into the closest scholarly tome, teaching myself about the history of the Bible, how it was written, by whom it was written, and how it came to us today in what we all know as the King James Version. What I have learned is fascinating and central to my understanding of Western civilization and its ethical and religious underpinnings. For example, biblical scholars now agree almost to a person that the Gospels were not written by their apparent authors. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, scholarly research shows that they were written by committees of authors and that they were not written until decades, if not a century or more, after the disciples died. Imagine if somebody had died in 1950 and nothing was written down about his or her life until 1990. How chock full of inaccuracies would that account of that person's life be? Such historical criticism of the Bible tells us that the Gospels should be read more like a historical novel than a history itself. And yet, many Americans are woefully ignorant of this information. The Bible itself was not compiled as one book until the late 4th century, until its creation was spurred by the Roman Emperor Constantine, who converted, to the Roman, or converted the Roman Empire from paganism to Christianity. Gospels by other disciples that were circulating at the time were eliminated from the formal version of the Bible because they contradicted, because they contradicted, listen to this, what had become by then official church doctrine. Again, most modern-day Christians assumed 
the, the Bible to be something that appeared magically in its present form right after Jesus Christ died. I probably went a little farther than I should, but, but, but my point is that's the status quo right there. I want you to understand that every preacher that is in college across America right now, when they're taught about the, the critical elements of the Old Testament, that's what is led with right there. That the, the Bible, the authors of the Bible did not write what they actually wrote. We're smart. We're scholarly. We have the ability to look at the language. And we, we know that, that this was pulled in from here and there. And it was just kind of compiled, compiled. And over the years, the Bible just kind of evolved into its current shape. Listen to this. We have to answer this question. Because if you don't know for a fact that the books that you have in the Bible are true, then how are you going to know what you're standing on? I gave you proofs and, and evidences for the inspiration of the Bible. And hopefully by now when we arrive at this moment in time that we all believe that the Bible is inspired. But now we've got to ask the question, well, which ones are inspired? Are there other ones out there I should be reading that are inspired too that I don't get to because some committee didn't put it in my Bible? I want to begin to answer these questions hopefully in a way that will make it so easy for you this morning. If you remember a few weeks ago, I showed you this little graphic up here. Now, this morning, we're not going to have the time to get into the entire Old Testament. We're going to take the first portion of it. Now, the Old Testament, if you remember, is divided up into three sections. You have the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And then you have the Nevi'im, the prophets, which would include Joshua. He's called one of the former prophets. But Joshua, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, all those guys. And then you've got the third section, which is the Ketuvim, the writings. This would be like the wisdom literature, the Psalms and the Proverbs. This morning, I want us to take that first one and think about the canonicity of the Torah. Can we just start there? We can answer the question later on in further sermons about whether we should listen to the Gospel of Thomas or, or whether you need to be reading the Book of Enoch or whether Tobit is something that we should take a gander at. But for now, let's just start at the very beginning. Let's look at the Torah and ask the question, is the Torah canon? Is it inspired? Should that be the Bible? Let's start there. I want you to take your Bibles with me. Flip over to the book of Exodus, chapter 24. The book of Exodus, chapter 24. Now, we could go one of two directions at this point. We could turn this into a college lecture and start talking about the documentary hypothesis, and we could get into the language analysis, and we could conjecture as to which, which uh, author uses which terms, which frequency of times, and, and we could debate about this being pulled together during the time of uh, the Reformation of Israel after the Babylonian captivity, or we could just go to the Bible and ask the Bible, how did the Bible come to be? And do you know what? The Bible will actually answer that question for you in a much simpler form than a college lecture? Watch this. Exodus chapter 24, verse 4. It says, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and he set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sent young Israelite men 
And they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and he put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. And they responded, we will do everything that the Lord has said we will obey. Now, a couple things really quick I want to point out in the text. Number one, the first thing it says is that Moses was a writer. Did you notice that? He's a writer. Now, a lot of people for a long time had a problem with that. There were a lot of people at the, at the turn of the century in the early 1900s that said, see, the Bible's not true. Because we don't have the, the, the evidence in history to know that writing goes back that far. We used to think that writing did not go back that far. Well, guess what happened? Through archaeology, through history, through the finding of all this documentary evidence, we now know that writing goes back thousands of years before Moses was ever even born. So would Moses have had a problem writing the first five books of the Bible? Not at all. And then take into account the fact that his, his status, he was what? He was a prince of Egypt, was he not? According to the book of Hebrews, it says that he was raised up in what? All the wisdom of the Egyptians. Well, guess what? We know what that's like because of archaeology and history. It tells us what that training looked like. By the time that Moses was 18 years old, he would have spoken and read and write multiple languages, including Akkadian. He would write in cuneiform. He would have spoken known Hebrew like, like nothing else. He knew these things. He was educated. And also, too, a lot of people don't realize. Um, let's see. Actually, go down. Look at verse 4. Let me go down to this slide here. Look at verse 4. The text says that Moses wrote down what the Lord gave him. That's verse 4. Look at verse 7, though. It says the people received it, the writings of Moses, not as the writings of Moses himself, but as what? The writings of God. They said, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. That's the first five books of Moses. So they've received it as canonical, right? They've received it as inspired. They've received it as the word of God. Now I want you to take your Bibles and skip over to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Go over just a few books of the Bible. We're now at the final book that he wrote, the fifth book that he wrote. It says, after Moses, after Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law, from beginning to end, from beginning to end, did you notice that? The Bible itself tells you that Moses wrote all five books. Modern day scholars don't believe that. They believe that he wrote maybe a piece of it or this piece or that piece. But the Bible itself tells you that Moses wrote the whole thing from beginning to end. It says, verse 24, after Moses finished in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He said, take this book of the law and place it inside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and there it will remain as a witness against you now what you notice again Moses is a writer we already saw that in the passage that we just looked at and here it says in the fifth book in Deuteronomy that he finished writing the words of this law it says that these writings became a book one book one unit one large scroll the Torah scroll and that it was now complete and now Moses tells the Levites 
who carries the Ark of the Covenant, he tells them to take this book and place it inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now stop right there for just a moment. The Ark of the Covenant is the most holy object to the Jews. Think about this. What is the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant? It's to be the place of the presence of God. Where was the Ark of the Covenant placed? The Ark of the Covenant was placed inside the Holy of Holies. This was the place that only the high priest could go in once per year. So in other words, Moses is taking his writings. Like, like Moses, who do you think you are? To take something you scribbled and you wrote and stuck it in the, stick it in the most holy object and put it in the Holy of Holies. Moses, who do you think you are? Let me tell you something. The people would have never allowed that scroll to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant if they did not deem it to be canon. They deemed it to be the very word of God himself. That's why they allowed it to be placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the lesson, guys. The people knew Moses. Why were they willing to accept the first five books of Moses as canon, as the word of God? Because they had been through all this stuff. They were there when he marched in the evil king, the Pharaoh, and watched as the ten plagues came against the, the land of Egypt. They were there when they had to eat the Passover that night. They were the little ones that were there watching their fathers as they were slaughtering the Passover lambs. They were there when they were going through the Red Sea. They were there when they saw the waters, the walls of water going up on both sides. They were there when they got on the other side and they saw the Egyptians get destroyed. So when it came to whether or not the people believed that this writing, this body of work, this scroll of the law, if they had any doubt, there was no doubt whatsoever. It was almost immediately accepted as the inspired word of God because of what they had gone through. Now, I want you to take note of something. I want you to take note of something. We started somewhere. We're trying to define the Bible. And at the time of Moses, after this happened, when they placed that scroll in the Ark of the Covenant, that's your Bible, isn't it? This is the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Don't worry about any other book whatsoever. We're starting somewhere. We're starting right here. And as of right now, during the days of Moses, that is the Word of God. It is immutable and it does not change. And here's the question. Does anybody question it? It's not questioned. A few hundred years later, when you're reading the time of the judges, when they refer back to God's law, they refer back to what Moses wrote. But do they question that Moses wrote it? They don't, do they? Look at this. During the time of David, about 400 years later, this is 400 years later. Do you see anybody in the nation of Israel sitting around going, you know, I don't think he wrote Leviticus. Now, Deuteronomy, maybe. But Leviticus, I don't think he wrote that. No. 400 years later, listen to this. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3. Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to Him and keep His decrees and commands, His laws, His regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go. So they're God's laws. They're God's decrees. They're God's commands. They're God's requirements. But Moses was the one who wrote them all down. Well, guess what? That was the Bible during the time of David. 
That was the Bible during the time of Solomon, which was about 400 or so years after the death of Moses. About 700 years later on, you might remember the story of um, uh, Josiah. Remember that? 700 years, about a couple hundred years or so, they had forgotten God's law. Nobody was reading the Bible no more. One day, they find a, a copy of the scriptures of the temple. They bring it out to Josiah. Josiah says, Oy vey, we should have been listening to this all along, right? And so he has the people repent, and, and there's this national revival that takes place, and they go back, and guess what? They take it as the word of God. It is the scriptures. It is the holy Bible. Nobody questions it it was not questioned during the time of josiah and daniel and ezra it was never questioned during the time of the prophets every single prophet over the course of several hundred years kept calling people back to the standard back to the canon back to what word the word of god said and it was still the standard even in the days of jesus christ it was always accepted without question as being written by Moses, being authoritative, and being inspired. It measured up to the standard that was from God. Now, earlier in, the, earlier in this uh, sermon, I mentioned to you something about the documentary hypothesis. And, and again, this is the standard teaching that's taught to every seminary student um, because it's the standard that's taught among academics, and, uh, and, and it's taught as fact, it's, taught, it's not taught as theory. And I remember that I was one of the only ones in my class that did not believe in it. In fact, I was sitting there so irritated having to waste my time and my money in that class <laughs> learning these things um, because, because I knew better. But if you do not adopt certain doctrines when you're in seminary, especially when you're going for your master's degree, you are literally ridiculed and looked down upon by your peers. Okay, so you have to hold certain doctrines and certain beliefs. Now, I want to tell you what the documentary hypothesis is because I want you to be aware of it. Okay, not because I want you to waste your time, but I want you to be aware of it because 99% of the people out there who do not believe the word of God that you're going to engage with have heard some version of this in their life from one time or another. Okay, now I want to tell you what the documentary hypothesis is and then I'm going to give you a shortcut. I'm going to give you a shortcut that's going to cut through all the smog and all the fog and help you to be able to prove without a shadow of a doubt that the Torah, the first five books of Moses, are God's word. We're not going to talk about any other books. We're going to start there, okay? Listen to this. Documentary hypothesis. 18th and 19th centuries, scholars started to deny the, that Moses actually wrote the Torah. He had a couple of guys. Jean Ostruck, he uh, he decided that Genesis actually was probably pulled together by two other original sources that we don't have today, um, but they pulled those sources together. That theory later on was codified in what is now known as the documentary hypothesis, and there were two professors that made it popular, K.H. Groff and Julius Wellhausen, two German, uh, two German uh, scholars. It's called the Groff-Wellhausen hypothesis. And basically, here's the idea behind it they said you know what there's 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 they, there's there's one writer that loves to use the word Yahweh a lot and we think that that's one person 
And then there's another one that seems to cite Deuteronomic laws a lot. And that probably came from a different person. And then there's the priestly sources. There's, there's sources that probably came from the priest because it seems to have more to do with priestly type things. And, and, and there's another one that instead of Yahweh, it seems like the, the word Elohim is used a lot. And so that was probably another source. And so these sources, again, very nebulous here. <laughs> Very nebulous. Over time, these things got pulled together, and eventually they said Moses wrote all of that. Okay? Now, I think it's a bunch of hogwash. It's a bunch of nonsense. And it wasted so much time in seminary. But let me tell you something. How many young ministers come to seminary wanting to learn about the Word of God so they can go out and start changing the world, and they get taught nonsense like this, and the first thing they do before they ever graduate seminary is they start questioning their own faith. And I've seen it happen time and time and time again. Textual scholar Kenneth Kitchen, very, very famous archaeologist and, and, and commentator, said this. He said, Even the most ardent advocate of the documentary theory must admit that we have as yet not a single scrap of external objective evidence for either the existence or the history of J.E.P. and D., those other alleged source document. Okay? In other words, it's just people's conjectures. It's just that when you get right down to it, the Bible says that Moses wrote it, and there's some people that just can't accept that. And I'm not one of those people. Now, let me give you the shortcut. This is what I, I, I mentioned at the very beginning. I want to give you a shortcut to cut through all of this stuff. We started this morning with a question. How do we know that the books that are in the Bible are the right ones that should be there? How do we know? We said that the word canon means the standard and the rule by which everything else is measured. What I'm going to show you over the course of the next couple of sermons is how to let the Bible teach you itself. Which book should be in there? Believe it or not, the Bible does that for us. And I'm excited to be able to get into that over the next couple weeks. But what have we seen so far? We've seen so far that the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, were immediately held to the highest standard, with the highest regard as being inspired and written from God. They were considered Scripture by all of God's people, all throughout the Old Testament, all of God's people, all throughout the New Testament. And it is still the standard, I believe, even today. Okay. So what is the shortcut I want to show you? It's simply this. Jesus in the Gospels quotes a lot of the Old Testament. One of the things that Jesus loves to do, seems like when he quotes out of the Old Testament, he quotes out of two sources the most. Isaiah, loves Isaiah. Jesus spent a lot of time in Isaiah. And the other one is the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And did you know that Jesus quotes out of every one of the five books of Moses? And guess what Jesus does? He tells you who wrote it. He said Moses wrote it. So let me tell you something, folks. Either Jesus is right or Jesus is not. Do you see how simple it is for me? Now, if I was in a room full of Ph.D. scholars, they would laugh at me right now. But I don't think you're laughing. You know exactly what I'm saying. I believe Jesus Christ himself knew who wrote the Torah because I think he was the one that inspired Moses to write the Torah. And I'll tell you right now, if you don't believe that, then uh, 
If you don't believe uh, in Jesus Christ, you've got much bigger issues than the authorship of Moses. <laughs> right? need to work on that one. Over and over again, we see the Bible claiming and proving to us that it is authoritative, that it is the Word of God. And lastly, I want to close with this. How does Jesus feel about the Torah? Is it authoritative? Is it the Word of God? Is it inspired? Jesus told the people of his day, do not think that I came to abolish the Torah. That's what the word law means, by the way, Torah, or the prophets, by the way. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anybody who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the, surpa- the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, we're going to stop right there. We're going to get into the rest of the Old Testament next week. So for now, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, you have the five books of the Bible. Okay, they're inspired. So read those this week. <laughs> next week, we'll add a few more in your Bible, okay? Uh, but we'll stop right there. All right, if you need to respond to the invitation, then go ahead and do so right now uh, as we stand and as we sing.